It is a wonder and a miracle to get this podcast out every week, especially with all the traveling I've been doing lately. Florida, Texas, Tennessee. Last week in Texas and Tennessee, uh, five days in Texas, to work on a founder story for my day job at VoiceLocket, VoiceLocket.com. This to tell just this amazing, amazing story that I hope to tell you more about in the weeks and months to come. And then in Tennessee to go to my alma mater, the unknown SEC school, the one that's not like the others, Vanderbilt University, to be inducted into the Student Media Hall of Fame. And when you looked at the fellow inductees, I was like, which of these is not like the others? Like the old Sesame Street song. And it was just amazing. And I snagged an interview, which I believe will air next week on the podcast, with a woman named Eileen Carpenter, who was in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, a black woman at Vanderbilt, one of 15, one five, 15 in the whole school in 1965 when she entered and she graduated in 69. And she is a walking history of what civil rights looked like on campus and off during those times. Look for that next week. This week, uh, Tiffany Carter, who coached me, even me, and the way I got in touch with her was because she was highly recommended by Colleen Odegaard, another former podcast guest. And Colleen Odegaard is a friend and I trust her. And Tiffany Carter was very expensive and worth every penny. That's what you need to know about her. And her story, holy cow, when I found out about her story, heads up before you go any farther, uh, endured, survived, and prevailed over unbelievable abuse as a girl and a young woman. And you would never know it because she's this multimillionaire superstar coach. And just brace yourself because we get to a lot of the really great stuff about her entrepreneurial skills, but not before we talk about how much she had to overcome and where she got help for that. Tiffany Carter. My house was like the house of horrors behind the scenes. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. This week, a powerful testimonial to the power of resilience and overcoming from not your typical multimillionaire entrepreneur, sales coach. Uh, uh, unbelievable. I mean, words fail me. She helped me enormously, Tiffany Carter, who you can find a lot of places. Just look for Project Me with Tiffany. Uh, she's on Instagram, all over the place. And her podcast, I was on her podcast yesterday, and I would recommend it to you because superb interviewer, guided the conversation, kept even me between between the, between the bumpers, between the, between the white lines. Um, she, she really guided that conversation. Immense value in that. Costs you absolutely nothing. I suggest you listen to it. Project Me with Tiffany, that podcast. Look for her on Instagram and online. Uh, highly recommend. But first, we get to listen to her story, which is difficult to hear, but inspirational, illuminative, and inspiring. Tiffany Carter. Where were you born? In Highland Park, Illinois, which is North Shore, Chicago. For your mother, your number what of how many? I'm it. I'm the only. I only have one living relative, and that is my mother. Okay. When you were two years old, your mother would have said, 
uh, well, wait, before I ask that, did your mother tell you anything about her pregnancy, labor and delivery with you? According to her, and just keep in mind, my mom is a narcissist, um, that it was, of course, extensive 30 something hours, da, 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 da. There's a whole dramatic story because I was born on Labor Day. So the doctor was on the golf course and they had to wait. So, yes, there was there was a dramatic story. Did your mother and father have a conversation about whether to have children? Yeah, I was unplanned. My mom had me at 37, which is not unusual now, but that was unusual then. And my father was 50. So the plan was no children. And so when they found out they were pregnant, the reaction was? From my father, I mean, overjoyed. Um, from my mother, I mean, again, it, I, don't, I don't have the privilege of getting clear answers from this person, but seemed happy about it. Um, because... You know, this is a dirty little secret. Some mothers, they just don't like being mothers. They like resent the shit out of it. Yes, that's my mother. But she'll tell you, she'll tell you that she loves being a mother and I'm her precious daughter and she'll say all the right things but her actions and behaviors are very clear that there's a deep seething resentment towards me. First off, before the world got to you, so at age two or three, what was your natural personality? Extremely shy. Oh, quiet. Quiet and shy and, and very, very polite, like unusually polite and well-behaved for a child. To want to please people. Yeah. Like, and to not get in trouble for mommy dearest. I, I, I even knew as a toddler, I even have memories as a toddler. I knew um, that I got more love and accolades. If I played the little role of, excuse me, please. Thank you. May I be excused? Like I even learned that that got me some form of love or, or positive attention. And if I didn't do it, conversely, that was not going to go well in my house. Um, did your mother love your father? I don't think so. Why did they get married? I think it was a business transaction on her end. Um, truly. I really think it was about that. He had money. My dad had money, but my mom's very successful herself. My mom went to Harvard, um, self-made. They both, it'd almost be like a realtor and a uh, development person getting married. Like it, it fit really well. My dad was the largest importer exporter of um, giftware products. So pen sets, those uh, first electronic watches with all the buttons and stuff in the 80s. Um, those Casio watches, if you remember those. And so my dad was in the direct sales business, like the mailers people would get from Montgomery Ward and Sears that mm-hmm. matched perfectly with my mom's skill set for them to, to build companies together. And her skill set was what? What what line of business did she do? Uh, she is more consumer packaged goods. So food, beverage, liquor, marketing. So point of purchase sale marketing, you know, like um, you go into a store and they ask, like, do you want a sample of this new cheese or protein bar? That's my mom's concept. My mom invented that. So as a kid, did you have a concept? We're rich. How old were you when you figured out sort of where you fit in the strata? I definitely knew we were rich because that was, my mom was very, my mom's very flashy 
And that was very important for her, for people to make sure they knew how success, successful she was. Um, so I knew that people were impressed by her, by what we had. Um, and then I definitely would say I knew when I knew we were rich when I entered like public school in fourth grade. I was in Montessori before that. Um, so I didn't I, I don't I didn't notice any difference, probably because all the kids attending there also had money. But when I went into public school and I went to other friends' houses, then I was able to see, oh, okay, like we have an Olympic sized pool in our backyard. Like that's not normal. What I'm wondering about is if you have money, there gets to be this weird thing about who's here just because I have the pool and who's here because they like Tiffany. Mm. I, where I grew up in North Shore, Chicago, and there were different lunch tables and categories. So some people are familiar with like, it's the jock table, you know, and then there's the, the nerds. Yeah. The nerd table. And that for sure, I grew up in that. And then there were like the popular table, which is totally messed up, but it's just how it was. The popular table were for sure. For the most part, those were the kids with the most money. So they had the cool clothes they had the cool houses. They had the best video games. You know, those were definitely the people in that sector. I, to paint the picture, I had the house, which I think is so funny when I watch this shit on reality TV. Now it's so pretentious and disgusting. Like I would never do this. So I was taught that when someone, you know, rang, rang the doorbell and you open up the grand, you know, big double doors, one of the first things after, you know, at me asking them to take their coat was to offer them a tour of the house. They didn't ask for a tour. Like but as I was, a girl, as a girl. You yes, that. this was my job. Oh, yeah. And I was to give them a tour and my my little friends, too. And to give a tour of the home. And that was like proper etiquette and what you're supposed to do to give a tour. And that's what I did. And it's like, if I, <laughs> I mean, I can't even imagine someone, and I have like two very nice homes. I can't imagine someone coming over and being like, let me take your coat. And um, I'm going to, I'm going to, let me show you the house. That was the phrase. How did your mom's conspicuous consumption look like how, what kind of car did she drive? She had the, you know, it was either a Lincoln Continental you know, or a caddy. Cause that was, that was the vibe, but we also had a DeLorean. Remember oh the God. DeLoreans? And oh, then yeah. that made me really popular when I was in like Could eighth you drive grade. That? No, it was eighth grade and freshman year. I think it was like the DeLoreans as some of you guys know, like they broke down all the time. So it wasn't a car that was chosen to. I just remember that he had around. a major Coke charge. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. what I remember. And I remember the wing doors. Yes. And we drove around. I got picked up from school, dropped off from school in the DeLorean. And that, that was, you know, that's very, very flashy. And that definitely like, that was popularity where I went, went to school for sure. And I liked how that felt. I did. I liked, I liked that. I liked how that felt, how my mom dressed when she came to dance recitals or picked me up from somewhere, very flashy fashionista. And my mom is, and was like very, very attractive and slender. Um, and you know, I mean, the guys in my school would even joke, like call her a MILF and stuff like that. That was a little embarrassing, but I kind of liked that my mom, I kind of liked that flash. It got me a lot of, I don't know. It got me a lot of something at school. Did you have a best friend back there? Somebody you could really confide in, like if things were not good? I would say I didn't have best friends until like real best friends on that level until high school. But I always had like a few like really solid friends. 
But there was a lot of stuff going on in that house that I knew if I told anybody, I mean, I would be, I thought I would be taken away. So I didn't feel safe confiding in anybody. Can you elaborate on what a lot of stuff means? Yeah. I mean, I'm very open talking about it. It can be hard for people to hear it, but you know, it's the reality of what goes on in homes and homes that you would never think. So my house was like the house of horrors behind the scenes. So I was being sexually molested almost nightly from starting from the ages of 11 years old. And this was by, there were multiple people, but one of the prime abusers was a key employee of my mom's and she knew about it and didn't stop it. And in fact, encouraged it and bought me um, sexually inappropriate attire to go on dates with these men. So in a blunt term, she pimped me out. Did you have a therapist that like how long before you dealt with that? I, you'll find this interesting given, you know, your, your TV career. When I was 23 years old working at NBC in Washington, I got put on a case of a gang, a major gang rape of an 11 year old girl. Um, and I, and it was like, you know, one of those stories where like, you're giving daily, uh, you know, daily updates. So you have to come up with new angles and interview different people. And I interviewed a psychologist to speak to, um, you know, the effects of what can happen, you know, to this 11 year old victim. And it was a sit down three camera interview. It was like a very prioritized interview, I remember. And when we finished and the mics were cut off, you know, the cameras were put down. And I wish I remembered this lady's name because I would love to have her on, on my podcast. But I don't because I probably blocked it out. She handed me her card and she said, very gently, but firmly, only a fellow survivor would have been able to ask those questions. And, you know, please, please reach out anytime, you know, to talk about, to talk about it. And I was frozen. I just went back into like newscaster TIFF mode, you know, like, well, this is a fantastic interview. You know, thank you so much. I appreciate your time, you know, and I probably threw a card out. But that was the first time someone punctured the denial that I had buried this trauma. That was the first time someone saw through my veil, you know, my false self veil that I didn't even know I had. And I was like, holy shit. And the fact it was a psychologist on top of it even more so freaked me out because then I go, God, maybe all this really did happen. Oh, you thought you like made it up or something? Um, yeah, that's what happens with a lot of severe trauma survivors. It gets so buried. It's like, well, maybe it didn't quite happen like that. And, you know, maybe I kind of asked for it. You know, maybe, you know, I didn't stop it. So, you know, it couldn't have been that bad. And then you misremember things and it gets all cloudy because you don't want to, you know, you've, you want to dissociate from it. and this came at me like a ton of bricks. And once you puncture that veil of denial, that false self, it's very hard to stuff everything back in the box. How do you know your mom knew about this? Because she literally took me shopping at, and there's some listeners will remember these stores like wet seal, contempo casuals, they were very like club clothes, you know, like what college girls would go by to go, you know, clubbing into, you know, fraternity parties. I'm 11 and she's buying me a micro mini hot pink skirt and a tube top and a crop top and 
having me wear these things to where I was super made fun of and bullied at school for the stuff I'd show up wearing at school. It was incredibly inappropriate. No, he took me out to dinner right in front of her, like in his Corvette, like over and over again. Like that's bizarre. And how old was this man? I was 11 and he was 23. And so when we would go to these restaurants, I'm talking like legit date restaurants, um, they, there would be alcohol and he would order the alcohol and I would drink it and no one batted an eye. And so then it reinforced to me that, oh, this, even though this doesn't feel right, it must be like normal or not that bad. No one said anything. Never one time. He even, or I remember one time he even ordered tequila shots. I was doing shots and no one said anything. Nowadays, do you think that would like, there'd be a lot more red flags? I think that there's sadly, and I know you've listened to the two-part series on my podcast, um, that if you guys want to really be enlightened and informed about what is going on in the world of sex crime, sex trafficking, sexual abuse, it is at an all time high. It's getting worse and worse and worse because it's being heavily fueled by technology. On the other hand, I think there would have been people who would have taken maybe videos on their phone or, or a picture on their phone because it had to have looked very bizarre. I would have liked to have think so, but most people don't want to believe that's going on because it's so horrifying. Most people turn the other way to this day, including people where it's going on in their own homes. They don't want to see it. Well, if, if you were in college, you know, or let alone being a college graduate age and dating someone who was in high school, I would think your peers would start making jokes about you, you know? Um, I mean, for a long time before we thought about any of this stuff, this the whole robbing the cradle and blah, 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 to try to just sort of make fun of people. It's like peer pressure against I mean, No one knew. So remember, I'm being taken to places where you would go celebrate an anniversary with your wife in, in the city of Chicago. Like, it's not like my 12-year-old friends are there. They're at like Chuck E. Cheese or some shit, right? Like, so it's not like I was running into friends. I knew not to say anything. It was, I knew not to say anything. And so I, I didn't, I stuffed it did and that has a horrific cost so how long after this psychologist told you at age 23 how how long did it take you to get to someone what did it take how were you able to reach out and and start to process this with a professional once that denial is punctured. Like I said, it can't be stuffed back in the box. So I started unraveling. Then I started getting paranoid. Keep in mind, I'm on TV, you know, and it's not like I was on like 2020, but when you're, you know, as you know, Stuart, when you're on TV and it's in a, you know, a rep, you know, a mid-sized city or something like you're kind of a local celebrity. And so you'd go to the grocery store, people know who you are. I felt like everyone could tell, like if this lady could tell, I felt like the gig was up and people could tell I was getting paranoid. I was get sweating when I was on the air. I was like, oh my God, I was un, I was absolutely unraveling to the point where eventually I quit TV because of it. Cause I felt like it was just too much for me. I felt like I was walking around with my skin off and everyone could see how damaged I was. So how did you get help? I made my way back to Los Angeles. I'm trying to think what 
made it happen. I just think I was spiraling and spiraling and I was like, I need to see someone. And there was a, cause I didn't have any, you know, money back then. There was a beautiful organization um, called the sexual assault response team. And I went in a outpatient program uh, for survivors of sexual abuse, sexual assault, sex trafficking. And probably because it was in Los Angeles, there were some more progressive programs that there might not have been if I was in like Oklahoma or something. And I spent six hours a day with therapists and other survivors getting help for months and months and months. And it was free, which still blows my mind. Um, did you have one-on-one -on -one counseling? Did you have like a therapist or someone like that? Or did you ever go to like some sort of inpatient program, some sort of extended? I had, no, I did outpatient. I never was, um, I never went to like an inpatient facility. Although I, if I knew that existed and I had the money and the resources, that would have been a good thing for me but I did the outpatient and yes, I had like solo therapy and I still do today. Um, if I hadn't have done that, I would not be alive. I mean, that definitely kept me alive. You would have harmed yourself. I would have offed myself. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. It's just too, it was too much. And I didn't have any support because in that program, one of the things they have you do is like write a letter um, to your parent, you know, to, and you don't have to send it, but, you know, at the encouragement of my therapist, they wanted me to read it. And I did read it to my father. My dad's, you know, no longer with us, but he's a sweetie and, you know, was horrified, but also didn't really do anything about it. Um, you know, did he, he suspect any of this? No, my dad was emotionally completely checked out. He's a checked out person, but very loving and sweet and kind, um, but just checked out. So maybe he did, but he checked out from it. He had to have known my mom was fucking nuts. So that that I'm confident of, like he had to have known that. But he I think he was just too afraid if he didn't play her game, he would never get to see me because all everything at that time and probably still today in the state of Illinois is heavily in the mom's favor. And so he might've not been able to have seen me. My mom had the opposite response, which was totally blaming me and shifted all the blame of it all on me. I'm a little worried that I'm gonna get the shit suit out of me by some woman in Illinois. I mean, how you're able to like make all this public. How is it that she is not like suing you for defamation or whatever? Well, if you noticed, I've never said her name. Right. Um, I've never said the name of her company and, and my last name and hers are different. Yeah. And this is also my truth and my story, but that doesn't stop someone from, from suing from suing, I suppose, but she also doesn't listen to anything I do. Cause it's not, I mean, she just doesn't, I mean, yeah. she'd have a big problem on her hands if she tried to sue me. Cause I'm rich now and I have lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't she rich now? Mm, she has money, but not, not the kind of money I have. And then I'm trying to figure out as we used to say a lot, the truth is a defense. And so you'd go to court and then we'd, we'd hear a lot of stuff about what it was like for this little girl, Tiffany, growing up in Highland Park, Illinois. With people who would absolutely back it up with concrete facts. So that's why she would never do that. That's why most of these people when you see survivors come out, you know, these like, you know, public figures and stuff, there's very few of them who come out, go after that defamation of character, unless it truly isn't true. If you notice, a lot of them make it go away. They do a settlement. They do something to make it go away because they know what will come out is a crap ton of evidence of the truth.
but it is so important to share your truth with something happened. And I'm not sharing it with an agenda of wanting someone to go and like blast my mom or hurt her or, or hate on her. It's simply my truth, just as what's true for anyone's childhood, whether it was good or dad was a drunk or, you know, mom worked all the time. Like these are just facts. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. Feel free to tell me this is like out of bounds, but how are you able to have um, a healthy relationship with someone now? Like, how are you able to have a partner or uh, date? How do you get to the point to where you can trust anybody? extreme amounts of therapy. I'm in a 12 step program called adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. Um, I have a lot of abandonment wounds. I have a lot of anxious attachment stuff. Um, I ended up over and over picking different versions of my mom, right? I picked, you know, narcissists, toxic people, active addicts, so recreating my childhood wound over and over again, I've spent a lot of time doing that. There's a reason I've been in, engaged three times and never married. I mean, there's also a reason I don't have my own children. I mean, that it's truly a choice, but I mean, there's a reason. And I definitely have a broken picker, as I would call it, um, that I still work on to this day, but I'm able to trust people. I really am. It's more so that I don't always pick the best people to trust. You've come a long way. You don't come oh. that far without just like, I just so honor all the work you've done. It's a daily slog. It's a, it's a, it's a day-to-day kind of thing. And it all can come back. It's like it all can come back up. And it does sometimes when I do deeper levels of like inner child work or because I have PTSD, I can have night terrors and there can be a flash of something that I, you know, that I buried because that's what our brains do when there's trauma. You'll literally not remember things and then they come up and then I have to work through that. But I have the tools, the resources and the support to do that now, like this pain, this stuff that happened to me, I genuinely believe, I don't wish it on anyone, but I believed it happened so I could be the beacon of hope for other survivors. So I could be the voice for those who are not yet able to share or might not ever be able to share. I know for sure that that's why that happened. And I'm honored and privileged to do that. You and I talk a lot about worthiness and whether someone is, you know, told they're never going to amount to anything by their parents or actually assaulted by their parents. Like I talked to a guy this week, 29 years old, father beat the shit out of him. So he's, he's fucked up. There's a lot of this, whatever form it takes. There's a lot of it that like comes out and there's no going around it. It's, it's, it's always going to be there. It's always going to, you're either going to have, you're going to have to go through it or you're going to eat fistfuls of Xanax, you know, or something like it. Without a doubt, there is no way to go around the pain. And I tried most of my life. I'm an addict of a different kind. I'm, I have, you know, I'm a codependent. 
it's people, places, and things that do it for me. So I became an exercise addict, which is a form of an eating disorder. I became a workaholic. And so I just picked uh, things that were more like socially acceptable for my addictions and places for me to hide. Um, and I, you know, I, I used to get addicted to other people's problems and, and, ha- you know, pick like the, the wounded bird and wanted to nurse them back to life, you know, anything to not focus on myself. And that was just a way of me running away from myself. And, you know, that just, it doesn't end well. It ended in me going to end my life about eight years ago. You know, cause that's, that's not living. That's your, when you're constantly running, it's exhausting. What intervened? Why did you not end, end your life? Only way I can explain it. It was a God intervention. What um, happened? I, I have a, another company and I'm have a long career in the pharmaceutical world. And I have a lot of friends clients that are doctors. So I knew exactly what pill concoction to take. And I have access to any possible medication I could ever want for the rest of my life. So I had the pills on my counter and I was, I was in a calm resolve to end my life September 5th, eight years ago on my birthday, I was done. I had millions in the bank. I had my nails done. My hair was just done. My eyebrows, like you wouldn't have known it from the outside, but I was done. I just couldn't do it anymore. And I was genuinely at peace about it. And I don't know what happened. It was a series of events. I truly can't explain it any other way, but a couple weeks prior, I went to an open AA meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to support a friend of mine. And it was one of those big meetings where it's like a big speaker meeting. There's like 300 people. And I was introduced to these two ladies behind me in the church pew. And the one lady was celebrating her 35th birthday. And I like, I didn't know what that meant. And I'm like, this lady's only 35. That's interesting. Um, And she was explaining a lot older. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And she was explaining it was her sobriety birthday. And then they were asking like, how long have you been sober? I'm like, oh, I'm not, you know, a substance addict. I'm here supporting this person. And they just asked me a few more questions. And the one lady goes, you know, you might want to try out ACA, like just a thought, just a suggestion. She slipped me a piece of paper with the name of a meeting and the location of where it's at. And I remember going, oh, how weird. That's literally like a minute from my house on that day. I ended up at that meeting that was a minute from my house and I walked in there and for the first time ever, I felt heard and validated and that I wasn't crazy and that I wasn't alone. And there was a whole room of people that all had wild, crazy crap happen to them all together. And I remember just telling myself, okay, like, I won't end my life today. I can tomorrow, but I won't just, I won't for today. And this is not going to cost $60,000. You're not going to have to have your insurance. Um, You don't even have to put a dollar in the basket. You just find your tribe. You just find those people. And if it was, if it was something like I had to go and like fly and go into a rehab or if I had to, I would, I wouldn't have done it because that, that was too much work. It had to be just this, this easy and that quickly powerful where I just, I sat there with tears running down my face. I mean, I was shaking. I was a disaster and I just couldn't believe there were other people with my story on top of it. There was a support program dedicated to it. So that was validating to me. Kind of like there's an international support group for people like you. Therefore, Tiffany, you're not alone. And it was mind blowing to me. And you can go anywhere in the world and plug in. Yeah, it was mind blowing. And that's, that is why that didn't occur. 
you know, therapy wasn't enough. It, I think it kept me alive um, and a functioning member of society for a long period of time. But my disease of codependency, man, uh, one just more toxic relationship after the next, after the next, and then working out four hours a day and feeling like I had to then working 12 hours a day. I mean, that's exhausting. Yeah. And no one's going to call you on that, by the way. They're oh, going to reward you for it. Exactly. They're going to reward exactly. you for it. I admire you so much. You're doing ultra marathons and you're climbing Mount Everest and you're Oh, I oh wish I could be like you. You're so disciplined. You're making all this money and you're totally devoted to your career. I just, that's just wonderful. And they'll just encourage you, encourage you, encourage you. And then we're like, how could she kill herself? She had everything. She had money. Her nails look so beautiful. <laughs> and that's when they say like people like um, Robin Williams, Anthony Bourdain, you know, these people we hear of and it's like, God, oh, but they had so much. They're loving families. They had a career. They're a public figure. They have money. I, I get it when I, it's sad, but I, I get it. it I get it, it too. And they I, don't. And so you were able to all of a sudden instead of taking the fistful of pills, you were able to actually open up and show all the brokenness to someone. And be accepted for it and not be, um, is the word uh, placated? I don't know what the right word is. You know, when you tell someone something like, well, you know, pandered, when you pandered pandered, to. yeah, where, where you tell someone like, you know, you were adopted or, you know, whatever. And the, Oh, I'm oh. so sorry. Oh, that must be so hard. That made me feel more shame than someone saying nothing to me. I, I hate it to this day when I overhear someone doing it, you know, when I'm out like at a cafe or something, I cringe. I absolutely hate that. So what were these people able to share with you that was genuinely helpful and, and led to this kind of profound healing? I, it was more what I observed because I was surrounded by people with a lot of talk. You know, as my grandma said, there's a lot of people who are good with the mouth, but not with the follow through. Too bad that wasn't captured on video with voice locket. <laughs> We've got video on this. I could keep this. You know, I mean, that when my, my my grandma said that, and she was in her 90s when she said it, I was like, isn't that the truth? So it wasn't so much of people were saying, because I was very over people talking. People have told me everything. You know, I've had at least probably 40 men tell me I was the love of their life. Like, you know, it's just ridiculous. And none of it, none of it mattered to me. It was me being hypervigilant, because that's what happens when you've grown up that way, and observing people who had stories that were similar or even more intense, and I saw them laughing. I saw them, um, even their energy, it just seemed calm. There was a calm confidence. They had, they had serenity. They had some peace. They had some joy. And then I went, wow. If it's possible for them, then it is possible. There's some hope for me. For people who are not familiar with the type of profound transformation, which we call it trust God, clean house, and help others, sounds so simple. But particularly in the house cleaning, the dumping of all this garbage, you know, like the cleaning out of all this. Um, can you talk about that process, the cleaning house? Because, you know, when you said you just had shoved it all down, it's very hard to overestimate the amount of damage that does to just keep it together, to just keep it all down, to keep from coming unglued. See, this is when I would say only a fellow 
survivor of very challenging things would have been able to ask me that. And see, I feel heard just by you asking me that. So I appreciate you asking me because a quote unquote, like normie person would have never asked me that. I have an analogy. Imagine that you have a, one of those like rubber bounce, those rubber bouncy balls that are like $2 at a Walgreens and you are trying to hold it deeply below water and all that thing. And it's, you know, and you know, when you've done that or your kids have done it and you let go and the thing like shoots up, but you're trying to hold that below water and it might not be hard for like to do it for maybe five minutes, but imagine doing that every day for decades. That is exactly what it feels like of keeping that under there. Or if you use like an analogy of even a duck, you know, see what happens with the duck under the water, their little feet are going crazy, but on the top, on the surface, it looks like they're gliding on the surface. You, I was not someone walking around where you're like, oh, she's like a nutcase. Like she's a, she's a second from snapping. No, I, I, I look, people wanted what I had. I had a very, uh, deeply Did you have a Prada bag. Yeah, I had the Coach. Prada bag. I had the, no, no, Coach. no, we've talked about this. No, I did not. Have, had, we've, not it's clear you had your nails done. You had the, you have the bag. Gal, okay. It's Prada, Louis it's Vuitton. Pr- Louis Vuitton. Yeah. Okay. So I was, you what know. What were you I, driving, Tiffany? What were you driving? Um, did you have the Mercedes then? I had the, yeah, I had, the, I had a convertible, you know, BMW. I was flying back and forth from LA to Vegas on a private jet almost every single week. Not my jet, but for a company jet, I was your, jet your, setting all over the world. I mean, beautiful friends. I had very attractive friends hitting the clubs, VIP line. You're in LA, you're going to nice restaurants. Right. So it looked And you're all, getting ready to kill yourself. Exactly. And that's why don't, when you compare yourself, even people you might've known from college or you're looking on social media, usually the people like fronting the most have the most that they're trying to hide. And it's not even necessarily, I was trying to be deceptive to other people. I was hiding it from myself. That's the great lie of Instagram, by the way, is that, oh, but she looks so good on Instagram and then she killed herself, you know? I mean, it's, it's the Instagrammable life, you know? Yeah, and that's why I've made a brand and a business of the whole I saw in the market and podcasting on Instagram, on TikTok, where I show you all the things, but I had to do many years of work and still I have to do daily work to be able to show up. But I, I say, what's up? Like I show the real deal of what things look like and not the fantasy marketing or the fantasy way. I want to ask you about worthiness because selfishly (laughs) still trying to learn that. So you figured out a way to piss away millions of dollars. And for those of us who have if you don't feel worthy, if somebody hands you a million dollar opportunity, what you do is you go, what are you, an idiot? No, I'm not going to do your million dollar deal. And you push it away as long as that's there. How, do, how did you get to the point to where you can accept the abundance that is there in the universe, that you don't have to go, 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 do, 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 work, 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 fingers to the bone, work at 90 hours a week, fast track, investment banking, never sleep. Um, But you learned, I'm a child of God. I'm worthy of this universe. I'm worthy of the bounty and abundance that is here. I'm not going to live a life of paucity and impoverishment. I'm going to open myself up to the love, the, you know, the beauty that is life. And I'm, I'm going to accept it. That's a huge transformation. So how did you go from pissing away money like it was water, like a sieve, to being able to say, wait a minute, I can 
earn millions. I can be happy and do this too. I don't have to make myself poor. I first had to believe that I didn't have to make a trade in order to be happy, in order to be abundance. And most of us were taught and even corporate America reinforces it, right? Like early bird catches the worm, you know, first, first in last to leave, you know, it's like uh, hard work, you know, success requires hard work. So we have a, we all have a lot of that programming. I had the programming, I had the modeling and I first had to get to a spot of questioning it, questioning some of these beliefs that feel hardwired. You know, you know, when we say, well, they say, as soon as you say, well, they say, or this is just how it is. I want you to question that. You know, they say you have to, it's great sacrifice to have great success and make an impact and be wealthy. Well, is that necessarily true? Like I had to start by questioning, is that true that I'm going to have to trade my well-being, physical, mental, emotional well-being, all of my time, um, my joy, in never order be to at the success. kids' soccer game. Yeah, exactly. Um, Do never I, be can't... there for dinner with my wife. Not being able to go on vacation with my family. Right, like there, I had to start questioning those things, all the things in my head, because all the beliefs I had in my head and the stories I was telling myself uh, got me to not a really great point in my life. They weren't to be trusted. So I had to question all of them and then start looking for contrary evidence. This is what worked for me. So if we start unpacking the, the lie I was telling myself of you have to sacrifice things that you're not going to want to in order to have success. Well, that, that sounds terrible, right? So then I questioned that, is that really true? And then I made myself look for evidence contrary evidence of that. It's only fair to look at both sides, right? I need, we call it fair balance in the medical marketing world. We got to look at both sides. Okay. I see that I believe this one side all these years. Let's see, is there contrary evidence? Is there another way? Is there a different approach? And Are there people who make millions who don't work? Right. Who don't, right. Who don't they work, who don't have work fun, who are good people. Yeah, yeah. They have, they learn about riches and passive income and they build up something that fuels them later on. And so I started actively seeking evidence. And once you put out there that you want to seek evidence, it's funny how the universe, God, whatever you believe in starts showing it to you. And it's interesting. My own father was evidence, but I didn't see it because I didn't even open up to the possibility. My father was not available for working very much. This man enjoyed doing lots. He enjoyed the art of pediddling, as he called it, <laughs> which is really the art of doing nothing, you know, going and checking on his, picking tomatoes from his garden, making pasta sauce from scratch. You know, he had, he had employees. He'd take me as a little kid. He'd go visit them, say hi, get a coffee, leave. I mean, it was the opposite of my mom, but I didn't see that until I opened myself up to proactively looking for evidence. So I had evidence of him. Um, there were evidence of even public figures, right? Who were making a lot of money doing something that they loved. Okay. There were evidence in me observing people um, on vacation or in neighborhoods where you're like, they're, you know, they're, they're out doing whatever at Target during the day. And these people have like a gorgeous home. So I started seeing evidence of what was possible. And if it's possible for them, well, then it has to be possible for me. I love it. You said that you thought it was God that intervened. Plenty of people will say, eh, it was just fate. It was just luck. It was just coincidence. Um, why do you fill in that blank with God? It, I have no other way of explaining it. I literally don't even remember driving to that meeting. And 
I feel many of us who've had things that have happened in our lives where someone was definitely like going to die of cancer and then they got another like six years when there's like no explanation, I truly believe that there is a power greater than ourselves at work. It's, it's not just up, not just us. I'm not in charge. There's too many wild miracles and crazy things that happen in this world that we can't explain. And that's my best explanation for it is that there was something, there was a power greater than myself at work there. And that's where I land with it. I could choose to be cynical or choose to be closed-minded and say, well, I probably just, you know, I don't remember. And, you know, maybe I never really intended to really do it anyway. Yeah. But how does that really serve me to look at the world that way and to not believe that there are miracles and there is something out there greater than myself that really doesn't serve me to not think that way. Kind of you know, petty. Kind of petty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it doesn't serve me. And, and if how you're anyone listening, how you're thinking right now and the things you are believing, it's not really serving your greatest good and the greatest good of others. Well, then maybe it's time to explore a different option, a different belief, a different possibility for yourself. Or I at mean, least to experiment. Yeah. Yeah. At least check it out. Don't you owe that, you know, in a court of law, right? You have to, you know, examine both sides. So if you've just been spending your whole life reinforcing and gathering evidence on this one side, don't you at least owe it to yourself to fill the evidence bank and investigate the other possibility? Quit making it so damn hard. (laughs) Quit, Quit making it so hard. Um, if we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy? Mm, that's a beautiful question. You are meant for greatness. You are meant for those dreams that are in your heart, those tickles, those little things that you want that you've pushed down. They aren't there randomly. They aren't there because you're just some dreamer. It's just like a fluke. They've been planted there for a reason. There's plenty of people who don't have those dreams and don't have those thoughts and don't have those desires. They're there for a reason and you're meant to do something with them. And by not doing anything with them, you're doing a disservice to not only yourself, but quite frankly, everyone in the world. That is, that is one of your deeper purposes. It's already in there within you it's that you've uh you're in resistance to it and where you release that resistance that is why you're here that is your deeper purpose and we all have one i don't care who you are all of us do allow yourself to trust those those tickles those daydreams those things that you said you wanted to do 20 years ago and you still didn't do you're supposed to do them God bless you, Tiffany Carter. Thank you for everything you've done for me. You're welcome. I would actually suggest that you follow Tiffany Carter and listen to her podcast. And um, I've gotten a lot out of it. And there's a lot, especially if you're an entrepreneur, especially if you're thinking about making the leap out of corporate America. She's got a lot of actionable, you know, palpable where the rubber meets the road you know she is eyes wide open and inspirational tiffany thank you i adore you and i'm i'm forever in your debt in her words is a production of the queen city podcast network in cooperation with balto creative media Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. 
a small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who's supported manlistening.com, manlistening the podcast and in her words. And now on to Voice Locket and voicelocket.com. And we continue to drop these episodes thanks to you. Thanks so very much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.